Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series through the penitential psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Turn with me to to Psalm chapter 6, Psalms. Uh, We are going to look, this is Pew Bible, page 449. We're going to look at this psalm, which is one of the penitential psalms. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before Your majesty, asking You from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of Your Word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny care of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. David, who wrote this psalm, was a man after God's own heart. And as you know, was guilty of adultery and murder. The Lord chose David to be king, anointed him to serve, established his kingdom, promised a perpetual throne, and yet, in the rebellion of David's son, Absalom, all of that was threatened. The rise and fall and rise again of David is a familiar story. Partly because of the historical record, for example, in 2 Samuel, but also the poetic record, such as Psalm 3. The third is a short psalm and describes the Lord's salvation of David from his foes amidst the turmoil of civil war. In 2 Samuel, David, it tells rather of David's son Absalom and and the coup that was formed to overthrow David. But what the specific account of 2 Samuel and the third psalm do not reveal is that this rebellion of Absalom was in fulfillment of God's promise. 
When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and subsequently murdered her husband Uriah the Hittite, it was as if he who had enjoyed such an open and vibrant relationship with the Lord could now seemingly hide his sins. Which I might add is just as preposterous as Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. I mean, think about how silly this is. Who hides from him who sees it all? Who hides from him who knows it all? Sinners. That's who. Sinners do these sort of things. Why? Because sin blinds us to the truth of God's love, and also sin impairs how we relate to God. And so, David, who, who thought he could hide his sin, learned differently, and he learned from the Word of God. You may remember in 2 Samuel that Nathan the prophet confronted David in his sin. It says, the Lord said to David, I anointed you king over Israel. And then goes on to say, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then God made this promise to David. Listen closely. He promised David this. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And you may recall, in that moment, David he didn't harden his heart. He didn't justify or seek to justify himself as if, well, you know, Lord, the reason I did this is, no, none of that. Scripture says that he did, in fact, agree with Nathan's confrontation. He repented of his sin. God said, or rather Nathan said from God, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And what God said, in fact, happened. The Lord, in fact, sustained David's life. He didn't die immediately. But David's child with Bathsheba did die. But again, that's not all God promised. He also promised continued conflict and rebellion. And remember, God said it's going to be from within your family, within your house. Even humiliation, even shame for the world to see. And if we had time, and we don't, but if we had time, we would go to 2 Samuel. And there we would find that what God promised did in fact happen. Inner family turmoil plagued David. His son Absalom incited a rebellion to take over the kingdom, even committing lewd and shameful acts on the roof of David's house. And as I studied this, and as I read it, I think, this is awful. Can it get any worse than this? I can't imagine going through it. 
But in the sixth psalm, we get a glimpse of what it was like. We get a taste of how it felt. The sixth psalm, to be clear, is not specifically identified with Absalom's rebellion. But a number of scholars agree that it fits the anguish of it. To the God who promised to punish his sin, here's how David cries out. He cries out, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It's a prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer to the covenantally faithful Lord our God, the God of Israel, who promised to discipline her king. David knows that he is to be rebuked. He knows that he is to be disciplined by God. And so his prayer, note carefully, is not to thwart God's purpose. But what? David appeals to God's mercy. David appeals to God's mercy. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Now, God may rebuke in His anger. And God may discipline in His wrath. But for the child of God, they come as a sanctifying lesson. A sanctifying lesson from the Father. This is the way that Moses explained it to Israel. He said, as a, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And the writer of Hebrews, as was read earlier, the writer of Hebrews furthers this with an explanation. The writer of Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now the writer of Hebrews goes on in that same passage to explain that when God disciplines us, and He disciplines His child, it is in that very act an acknowledgement of our relationship. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, discipline shows that He's your father, that you're His child. He doesn't discipline those who are not His children. And when we consider that He disciplines us for our good, the writer of Hebrews says, and goes on to say, that we may share in His holiness. Then, when we think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, we understand that good includes God's discipline with the ultimate purpose of holiness. But what is good for us, and I know I'm getting ready to state the obvious, but what is good for us doesn't always feel good, right? Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, another obvious statement, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. <laughs> the Word of God. <laughs> but he goes on to say this, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that Greek word trained is similar to our word disciplined. By the one who is trained, the one who is disciplined by it, God is at work in it. So when David cries, 
in our psalm, in Psalm 6, I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. He is indeed in that very moment of weeping. He's right there in that moment that Hebrews describes. Where discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But he does not run from God. Calvin says is this is one of the distinctions between a child of God and the unregenerate. The child of God, when being disciplined, runs to his or her father. As opposed to running away from God. And David does not run from God like he did in his sin. But rather he runs to God. And I might add, he runs to God in his suffering. Praying this, be gracious to me, O Lord, a petition for mercy. Nor does David hide how he feels from the Lord. Again, this is one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. We really honestly get a feeling of what he is going through. I am, look at verse 2 with me, I am languishing. I am languishing. Have you ever felt that way before? The Hebrew word translated languishing, it's actually an agricultural term. It's just to chase that rabbit for just a second. But, but agriculturally, that word can be used to like a fruit on a tree and it's drying out and it's not worth eating anymore. Or I think about it this way, like in a vineyard when the, the grapes shrivel up. And they're not worth picking anymore to make wine. And, and the idea that is used agriculturally can also be used metaphorically. And that's how it's being used here. It conveys the sense of weakness or vulnerability. I am languishing. I am, I am, we might say, I am so weak. I am so frail. What David describes is the Opposite, I might say the polar opposite of sinful pride. We've got godly weakness and sinful pride. And when we think of ourselves as strong, perhaps invincible, I would never do that. That would never happen to me. I would, it's like I was talking to one, someone said before, I wish I could have been in the garden when Eve fell prey to that temptation. Really? Are you kidding me? You'd have fallen like the two of them together. Probably quicker. Right? But the general idea of this is this weakness, this frailty is the opposite of this pride. The idea that, well, I'm not susceptible to the desires of the flesh. I'm not susceptible to the desires of the flesh. I'm not susceptible to the pride of life. And I think about it in the context of David, and I think, I wonder if that's how David was when he gazed upon the naked body of Bathsheba. I wonder if that's how David felt when he sent Uriah to the front line to be murdered. I wonder if that's how David felt. Sin led David to think that he was unseen and unaccountable. No one will see this sin, but the Lord shows him otherwise. And now in this moment, he's teaching David. He's teaching David through this languishing. 
While God knows our frame, Scripture says. While God remembers that we are but dust. Sometimes you and I, we need to be reminded that God knows our frame and we are but dust. Employing the metaphor of sickness, David prays to be healed. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. This has led some commentators to believe that David is describing a sickness here. But more than likely, what David is describing is bone-deep anguish. Have you been to the point where you have mourned so greatly that you have hurt? That your body has hurt? I think about it in, in this way. I know what stress does to me. Stress exhausts me. Stress makes me want to sleep, and yet I can't sleep. It wears you out. And I think this is the general idea here. But when David says that it's, it's bone deep, the Hebrew word that's translated bone also can be translated being. In other words, it's bone deep, it's all of me. It's down to my core. Every bit of my being. That's where I am in this turmoil. His suffering is under the weight of God's discipline. And he is pleading, God have mercy. How long will this continue? How long will I be suffering like I am suffering today? And sometimes how God teaches us, it can seem like the never ending lesson that goes on. And on and on. And surely that's how David felt as he fled the capital city of his kingdom. You may recall that David fled the capital fleeing for his life. But also fleeing for the lives of his family. He knew what Absalom would do. He knew what Absalom could do. And while not of all of life's trials and tribulations are discipline. God is always at work in us. It's why John Knox, when he's preaching on this psalm, Psalm 6, interestingly enough, he's, Knox sends a sermon to his mother-in-law. How's, how's that? He preaches a sermon to his mother-in-law. And I love my mother-in-law. I'm not sure I'm going to send her a sermon. But John Knox sends a sermon to his mother-in-law. But in that, one of the beautiful things about that sermon is, is that he helps us understand that God can work in the life of Job, and we would not classify that as spiritual discipline. God can work in the life of David. We do understand this as spiritual discipline. And you know what's unique about the two? They're not really that unique in terms of what God is after. Because He teaches Job repentance, doesn't He? He teaches Job dependence. He teaches Job that God is sovereign over all. And that's where David is. David, in this moment, he is seeing that my God is the true God. And as God is at work in us, amidst the lessons God teaches, you and I, maybe even you this very moment, are wondering, how long? How long is this going to last? I don't have the endurance to go on any longer. And we may pray, Lord, let me learn the lesson already and be done with it. <laughs> but who knows what is best for you Better than the Lord. I love the way that Calvin puts this. He says, We must submit our case entirely to God's will. 
and not wish him to make greater haste than shall seem good to him. (laughs) And what seems good to God, what seems good to God is always for his glory and always for our good. Therefore, God's discipline is not only a gift of God's grace, but discipline is also an act of love. It's an act of love. When we consider the attributes of God, and I've noticed this recently, when we consider the attributes of God, it's very easy for us to pit God's attributes against one another. Maybe not you, but the world certainly does. For example, when we think about God, when we think about David's sin, think about it this way. When we think about his adultery and his murder, what do we expect? Justice, right? We expect justice. I mean, think about this. He preyed upon a vulnerable woman, then manipulated his power to murder her husband in their marriage. Now, that's pretty bad. That's really bad. And so we expect justice, found guilty. We might even read 2 Samuel and say, well, you know, his family turmoil and the trial of Absalom and the tribulation of the Civil War, well, he deserved it. He had it coming. And you know what? I'm thankful. Justice was served. We may think that. And in the sense of the justice of God, that's not wrong. But when we consider God's discipline of David, it's a whole lot harder for you and me To think of it as love. Why? Because we want to pit the two against one another. We want to say, God's justice, God's love, never the two shall meet. Baloney. They meet. In fact, they meet right here in this psalm. From our fleshly perspective, what we read at first blush doesn't seem like love. And unknowingly, we may even consider God's justice and love as incompatible attributes, but they are not. God's justice is revealed in His discipline of David, and Hebrews says, He disciplines those whom He loves. We see this clearly in David's plea for mercy. He is crying out to help. To whom? To the very one who disciplines him. How contrary to our fleshly thinking is that? I'm being disciplined by God. Oh God, help me. (laughs) But that is his plea. Look at verse 4. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. God rebukes David. God disciplines David. God delivers David because God disciplines the child he loves. Calvin says, Men, when they are compelled to feel that God is angry with them, often indulge in complaints full of impiety rather than find fault with themselves and their own sins. But not David. He has been confronted by the Word of God. He knows what God has said. And he appeals to God's love. Not denying the reason for God's discipline. But rather, what we see in David is a right perspective. He understands the justice of God. He understands that God loves him. He understands that what God does for him and what God does for you is for 
your good. It's for his good. And so that's why we also see that it gives David a reason to praise. An unexpected turn, perhaps, in the psalm. Although, according to God's law, David was deserving of death. But God forgave him. In fact, God sustained his life. And David knows this. And David also knows what all good Presbyterians know. He knew what his chief end is. He knew his chief end was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But in Sheol, which is the Hebrew transliteration in our English translation, that Sheol essentially means grave. When someone dies. It doesn't mean hell per se. It means when someone dies, the grave. And so what's David saying? He's saying, well, when someone dies, they're, they're, they're dead. And so they're not around to praise you anymore. Plentiful is the praise of heaven, but you have to be present here to praise Him here. And David knows that he has been shown mercy. How can he not praise the Lord who gives him the breath to breathe? Hardy are the praises when one deserving death is given life. Or at least they should be. For every child of God, think about this with me, each one of us are deserving of death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, as was read this morning and as we confessed, Romans 6.23, we are all due the death by virtue of our sin. But what? But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can the child of God who deserves death and is given life, how can you and I not praise Him to the bone? Right? With all of our being, heart, Soul, mind, strength. How can we not praise God? The Lord loves His children. And He gives us life. And not just that, but He also sustains our life. He keeps us. He protects us by His grace. And so in conclusion, I ask you this. Have you ever thought of God's discipline as protection? What would happen if God never disciplined you? What would happen if God never disciplined me, leaving us to ourselves like a spoiled child? We've seen this child before, haven't we? (laughs) I pray you don't have this child, right? You've seen this child before, the spoiled child. Yeah, that's never disciplined. God is not that kind of parent. God does not spoil His children. (laughs) No. In David's case, He anointed David king and was at work in him. And God's work in David was not to make him a perfect king. It was to make him a sanctified son. It was to make him a sanctified child just like you and me. Now, there would be one to come 
the son of David, who is the perfect king. But that was not God's purpose in David. God's purpose in David was his sanctification. And so God's discipline then protects us, and oftentimes it protects us from you know who? You, that does like me, myself. Oftentimes God's discipline protects us from ourselves. But it also protects us from our enemies. In David's case, he fled the capital city. He hid in the wilderness. And he fought his foes until the end. But God led his way. God kept him safe. And God gave him the victory. God even protected him from the wisest man in the kingdom. Do you remember that guy? It's the one that's really hard to pronounce. Ahithophel. Right? You're reading it. How do you pronounce that? Ahithophel. You remember that guy? He was the guy that turned traitor against David. He was David's counselor. He was David's trusted advisor to the king. And in fact, it says that his word was so wise that people considered it like the word of God. But when Absalom grew powerful, Ahithophel became an opportunist and aligned himself with Absalom. But when David's former advisor became his adversary, the Lord became his enemy. Here's what Ahithophel, easy for you to say, Ahithophel, here's what he forgot. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And in the end, Absalom died. And with him, the rebellion. And you know the rest of the story. If you read the Bible, you know that Ahithophel went home, tidied things up, and he killed himself. He ended his own life. But God protected David. A far greater adversary, however, seeks after you and after me. Scripture refers to him as prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, to be clear, that roar of his is often in the form of accusations. Revelation says that he's just roaring about both day and night. And what his favorite thing to do is to herald your sin and my sin. Ah, those sinners! Ah, John, he's up to it again! Ah, Imagine him calling himself a child of God. And if he can, this enemy of yours and mine, he will tempt you amidst discipline, amidst trials and tribulations, he will tempt you to think, I'm rejected by God. I'm not one of his children. I'm alienated from him. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us the exact opposite, doesn't he? He says, no, 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 you've got it backwards. When you are encountering discipline or trials or tribulations, it doesn't mean that God is far away. It means that you are His child. What our adversary won't roar is this. He'll never roar the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Our enemy hates the holiness of God. He endeavors to undo our conformity to it. 
But the Lord's discipline, it's like a protection. It's like a shield. It's like an armor protecting us and teaching us and training us for our good that we may share God's holiness. And because the Lord is at work in us by His grace, we can say to the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we can say this, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. But there is no shame for the one who trusts in the Lord. For He is our Father. And we are His children. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven... This is a hard psalm for us. We live in an age where we're taught that every day should be happy-go-lucky. And that if it's not just mere joy, then there's something wrong. And yet, David cries out to you in his anguish and languishing. And so shows us that we too, as your children, must turn to you, even crying out to you in all cases. May we not be children who want to run from you, but run to you. And we enjoy this privilege by your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.